Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where today we have a very special groundbreaking guest. Why do I say that? Well, because on January 3rd, at the ripe old age of 25, Madison Cawthorn is going to be sworn in as the youngest member in Congress in a very, very long time. The youngest Republican ever and one of the youngest in well over many decades, I think going back to the 1940s and 50s. Real remarkable um, storyline because he ran in the Republican primary against a candidate that President Trump and um, Mark Meadows, the chief of staff and former member in the House seat in North Carolina that Madison ultimately won. And he beat that candidate. You know, he's a big Trump guy, but he beat the Trump preferred candidate because he was younger, more energetic, had a better ground game, and he won. And then he sailed into the general election and beat the Democrats, hand-picked candidate, and wow, he won again. And now, at the age of 25 on January 3rd, 2021, he'll be sworn in to represent the 11th District of North Carolina on the western side of North Carolina. He's got lots of ideas on shrinking government. Uh, coming up with a conservative market-based healthcare plan, uh, humbling or taking down a notch the big tech companies with their censorship and a monopolistic uh, oligarchy, oligarchic-like behavior. And so we're going to talk to him. He's got a lot of ideas. He's a young guy. He's going to have to feel his way around Washington. Washington's not a town you learn in two minutes, but he's got um, a real bright future potentially. And we're going to have him here for the whole show to talk about what is it like to be a young congressman? What was orientation like? Uh, and what's on the agenda? What can he do in a Democratic controlled House with a very narrow Democratic majority to get some things done? He has some ideas on infrastructure. I think he'll talk about bipartisan opportunity there. I think he also has some ideas on uh, the big tech monopolies and what can be done that would uh, satisfy both Democrats and Republicans. Obviously, Democrats want to shrink them from a monopolistic antitrust perspective. Uh, Republicans want to shrink them or break the the censorship hold that they have on American um, uh, free speech. And I think he's got some bright ideas, some concepts, some policy ideas that we can all talk and learn from today. All right, so we're going to have Madison Cawthorn on in a little bit. We're going to go to a quick commercial break here from our great advertisers. When we come back, we are going to uh, first talk about uh, some of the truisms and some of the falsehoods in the uh, election integrity investigation. Yes, there are some bad stories out there put out by conservatives or embraced by conservatives that are wrong. And there are some very, very important ones that maybe aren't getting the attention they deserve. I'm going to talk about that right when we get back from this commercial break. Angie's List is now Angie, A-N-G-I, the nation's largest home services marketplace. And they're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project is, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. That's what you want, right? I'm uh, thinking about building out my basement 
in my cabin. I've been perusing Angie, looking for just the right contractor to get it done the way my wife and I want it done. Now, Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and right in your neighborhood. That's important, right? You can do comparative shopping. Get started today at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I or download the app today. The app and the website are free to use. Angie.com or the Angie app. Go check it out today. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised in a few minutes, we are going to have Madison Cawthorn, soon to be the youngest uh, member of Congress on January 3rd, now the youngest congressman-elect for the new Congress coming up next year. Uh, he's going to be joining us. He repre- he'll he be representing the 11th District in Western North Carolina, uh, a real up-and-comer in the conservative ranks, a, a Gen Z, l- freedom-loving, liberty-loving um, uh, member that I think uh, is going to tug at the heartstrings of the older generation in Congress and challenge some preconceptions. Yeah, you're going to want to hear what he has to say. He's a fun interview and full of ideas, and so we'll we'll be following him and see how that works. Um, I wanted to mention some things that um, are uh, out there floating around that need to be both confirmed or knocked down because uh, the time for conservatives to make their case that there was election irregularities and fraud that actually materially could have changed the election is shrinking. A lot of the cases that have been forth so far have not succeeded in part because there's been a reliance on things that aren't fully locked down. There hasn't been an effort to uh, really find uh, the numeric proof that would say, hey, yes, these frauds occurred, but it also occurred on a scale that could have changed President Trump's 20,000 lead in Wisconsin or uh, uh, 82,000 lead in uh, that state and 150,000 lead in another state and uh, 12,000 in this state, I think, or 12,000 in Georgia, if I remember correctly. Um, uh, It is time for the Uh, lawyers to either put up or get out of the way because uh, the time is coming for the electors to be named. And uh, so far, a lot of the heat-seeking missiles that have been launched just have not hit their target. So what I tried to do over the weekend is pull together. I read every affidavit, every lawsuit, every statistical analysis. I went through all of the work that we have done at justthenews.com on our election integrity project, where we've put out real facts, real data, real people with names, people who said my vote wasn't counted when I voted for Trump, or I enlisted as voting and I didn't even file a ballot. So how could it be? There must be fraud. We've got uh, the statistical analysis that um, Matt Brainer did for us that uh, really shows the potential, at least in Pennsylvania. We're trying to extend that to other states as we raise money for the project. Uh, we are getting data. We are getting real um, names and numbers that can be uh, withstand the scrutiny and possibly withstand um, a court challenge. Our job is not to argue or to help President Trump, hurt President Trump, our job is just to get the American people the data that they need to show that um, uh, what is going on in the um, uh, election uh, space is troubling or not troubling. In some cases, Joe Biden might have won a state fair and square, but we want to get to the bottom of that and address these questions. And so what I did is I uh, put together what I call the dozen 
best examples of um, election integrity or election irregularities that we've been able to document, meaning there's real proof, not just, you know, hey, I think something bad happened, but real things. And I want to go through them. But before I do, I want to address one of the theories that some conservatives have uh, ballied about. Uh, It starts with the idea that votes were just changed um, in the machines without other corresponding evidence, algorithm changes. I've heard a lot about this, but if you study the state systems like we did, and I mean, we have 30 reporters in six states that have dug into this day and night, a algorithm change of data, just magically changing poof, uh, doesn't actually hold up. Here's why. As soon as they would get to a recount, or as soon as they got to an audit, as have happened in many of these states, if there wasn't a corresponding paper ballot, if there wasn't a corresponding person who showed up in the poll book and in the poll day, uh, the algorithm would be exposed immediately and it would be an easy slam dunk, embarrassing uh, uh, election fraud. I don't believe those who, if there were people, who are trying to hijack the election. And again, I think that's an open question. Uh, There's certainly evidence of some fraud and and untoward behavior and misconduct, clearly. But that doesn't mean that um, yet we've proven that there was a widespread systemic fraud yet. Now we're seeing signs of it. The the data analysis we did in Pennsylvania suggests it. But uh, the idea that a machine just changed votes and there's no corresponding paper ballots to... um, back that up would be exposed in a second i think that the german raid remember the german raid that we heard about oh they seized uh, i don't know was it dominion or someone else's uh, servers it's just not true it didn't happen the raid that was caught on video occurred in july july it had nothing to do with the election or the post-election period there's a lot of misinformation that conservatives have pursued they are wasting their time and they're wasting the American people's attention and they're wasting valuable days to get to the bottom of what may be real and legitimate uh, fraud or misconduct or irregularities. Now, again, whether or not um, uh, that holds up, you know, whether it, it, it's widespread enough, we'll see. I do think to, uh, just a few minutes ago, the appeal, uh, federal appeals court in um uh, the, uh, the middle of our country gave an expedited review to President Trump's election claims in Pennsylvania. That's a win. That's a big moment. It means that the, a higher court is going to take a look at their evidence. But now it's incumbent on the Trump campaign, the Amistad Project, all of the key players to put the best evidence forward to say not only were there irregularities, because we've documented irregularities, but the irregularities were widespread enough that they could materially have changed the outcome of the election. That is the burden of proof. It's time for the president to uh, get that proof out there and not stop chasing uh, wild dreams, uh, or I shouldn't say he's chasing them, but some of the lawyers and some of the activists have been chasing things that just aren't there. If there was a systemic fraud, what we've learned from the experts, what we learned from our own data crunching, what we learned from reviews, it likely would have occurred in the form of a modern day ballot box stuffing, meaning that uh, at the end of the night, uh, Democratic officials in some of these cities knew the gap that Trump had, how much he was in the lead, and they could have. I'm not saying they did it, but the most likely scenario that has been placed forward uh, has been that they stuffed the ballot boxes in the early morning with absentee ballots with anyone who hadn't voted. They put a name to it and stuck it in a ballot box. That's an allegation. 
it is not proven yet. But we do see some very important pieces of evidence. Uh, and uh, that's why I put together my, uh, my list of uh, stories, because I think it's absolutely essential uh, that we look at what is provable, not what is theorizable or conspiratorial theorizable. So listen, we've talked about uh, the Jesse Jacob uh, affidavit. I still think that's the single most important piece of proof that has been offered in terms of a systemic uh, fraud effort in Detroit. Why? Because uh, we know she participated in it. She says uh, she was asked to backdate ballots, ballot requests. She witnessed on a daily basis people not checking the voter IDs. And the day after the election, she was told and admits she did, as did 80 other people like her. So think of the scope and sale. 80 people did this. Backdated large numbers of ballots to make them look like they had come in before the election when, in fact, they had come in on November 4th. If the Democrats had a Jesse Jacob, they would be parading her about just like they did with that Ukraine whistleblower. She's the ultimate whistleblower. For some reason, the Republicans haven't dug in enough to realize she's an eyewitness participant in alleged fraud. She sticks her name to it. She's in a Democratic city, a civil servant, uh, worked for her city for a long time. No reason to lie. She's credible, uh, at least on the prima facie. Now, you know, everyone could lie, but uh, she, she, she stands up as a compelling whistleblower witness. If Adam Schiff had her, he'd be parading her about town. The conservatives and Republicans and, and the campaign have not done more investigating to find out who were the other 80 people? Do they agree? Who were the supervisors? Can they be subpoenaed? It's a missed opportunity, but the single best proof, remember, she says thousands of ballots were being changed every day. That's her testimony. That's an important thing. Certainly thousands of ballots a day after. And then she described a period of 60 days where these um, supervisors were instructing illegal behavior every day to be carried out by election workers, not checking voter ID, backdating ballot requests. Um, there is a roadmap to a criminal case, a civil case, a civil RICO case sitting in there. And she, it would appear, could identify 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 more witnesses based on her affidavit. To me, it's the most important piece of evidence that has been out there because it has a scope and scale that could be material to the outcome. Secondly, staying in Detroit, we now know from the Wayne County Board of Canvassing uh, Republicans, uh, William Hartman particularly, that the books in Detroit, the books of approved authorized voters don't match the ballots. If you take that and you extrapolate from what we already know from um, Jesse Jacobs' affidavit, there is a giant red flag sitting over the city of Detroit with provable uh, information, and that needs to be drilled down to in a very quick way, a very important piece of the puzzle. Now, remember, we talked about ballot stuffing and ballot box stuffing as, as the likely means, not some mysterious computers changing numbers, because at the end of the day, if the computers changed numbers and there were no ballots to back it up, it would have been exposed right away. If there was a fraud, there's almost certainty, a high degree of certainty, ballots had to be created and run through the machines to pull it off. Well, in Georgia, we have evidence from the great attorney, Lynn Wood, who's been very successful throughout his life. Nine observers have put their name to affidavit saying that during the recent audit last week, the recount that occurred last week in Georgia, they saw large stacks of what are known as pristine ballots, meaning they weren't folded. They had no other markings on them. Why is that important? You're supposed to fold an absentee ballot and stick it into 
an envelope and sign the envelope, which means there would be fold marks and other marks on these ballots. Again, if you were rushing to do a ballot box stuffing episode and I'm not, uh, or uh, operation, and I'm not saying we're proving that, I'm just saying that's the most logical of the theories based on the evidence that's currently uh, in these affidavits. You probably wouldn't have time to fold them and put them in an envelope. Listen to what these Georgia affidavits are saying. That, in fact, they saw unfolded, pristine ballots for Joe Biden being recounted. That's a real red flag that needs to be uh, checked out. And, of course, in Georgia, we have some other things. If you look at the list of things I've done, there, there's several thousand, five to 6,000 ballots that never got counted on Election Day. They were lost. They were only found during the audit. That's a troubling sign of things ahead. And then, of course, we had our big review last week. We already talked about it. I'll just mention it. But the sworn declarations, the uh, um, people we um, interviewed, the statistical analysis of the Yale-trained uh, um, uh, mathematician Stephen Miller, Yale and Princeton trained um, math expert, now at Williams College, saying that based on interviews, data, and other reviews, he can confidently say he thinks there are as many as a hundred thousand suspect ballots just on two areas: people who said they voted and their vote didn't get counted yet, uh, all of them being Republicans. And uh, those who said that they didn't request a ballot and a ballot was filed in their name, meaning voter fraud, two very important uh, acknowledgments by a real uh, expert and uh, written in a declaration that could withstand a court uh, thing. We have many others like this. I'm not going to go through all of them. Go ahead and read the story on justthenews.com. The headline is, and I I encourage you to read it because there are 12 of them. They're very solid and all the underlying proof is in the story. The headline is a dozen compelling allegations of voting irregularities in the 2020 election by yours truly, John Solomon. All right, one more commercial break. When we come back, as promised, I'll stop teasing it. We're really going to get to Madison Cawthorn, the soon-to-be youngest member of Congress, a Republican from the great state of North Carolina, right after this commercial break. You know what, folks? Stress may be why you can't lose weight. If you've got moderate to high stress like I do, a doctor-formulated weight loss supplement called Lean could be your solution. Chronic stress wreaks havoc on blood sugar, which can cause your body to store excess fat. Stress can also slow your metabolism, which fuels weight gain. And you know all about stress eating and sugar cravings, right? Now the good news. The studied ingredients in lean have been shown to help maintain healthy blood sugar levels, help optimize metabolism, and keep your appetite under control. Now, if your life is a bit stressful like mine and you want to lose weight, Add lean to your healthy diet and exercise lifestyle. Now get 15% off and free shipping at takelean.com. That's takelean.com and enter the promo code justnews15. That's the promo code justnews15 at takelean.com. One more time, takelean.com. Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and it's not a substitute alternative for care from a health care provider. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special and groundbreaking, groundbreaking guest, Madison Cawthorn, the youngest member of Congress. He'll be sworn in January 3rd at the age of 25, a remarkable uh, uh, election he ran. And now uh, he'll be representing the 11th District of North Carolina. Madison, welcome to the show. John, thanks for having me on. It's an honor. 
Yeah, it's an honor to have you, and I have to call you Congressman-elect now. That's a pretty darn cool title. I like that. Well, thank you. I'll say it's a whole lot better than candidates. So I'm, I'm <laughs> for sure, for sure. Looking forward to being able to get to work for my for my people come uh, come January third. Yeah, it's very important representing those constituents. So, um, a lot of our folks have heard the story of how you how you got elected. But what is the when you look back at the extra, your extraordinary rise, the you know winning the primary against a, a candidate that had been endorsed by a lot of the other power brokers in the Republican Party, and then coming through beating the Democrat taking all sorts of uh, attacks against you from left, right, all across. What, was, what are some of your biggest takeaways from the election, running for your first office, scoring Congress? What did you take away from this? You know, I think it all comes down to intentionality. Uh, I think that uh, elections are simple to win. If you have a good message, you can deliver that message, but also you know where you need to deliver it. Uh, so, you know, m- my best friend and I, he, he's 22 years old. He happened to be my campaign manager. Wow. So. Having a, a, I was 24 at the time. Was not even constitutionally eligible to be a congressman at, during the primary. Right. Uh, running against a, a Donald Trump endorsed candidate, although we are huge President Trump. Uh, we're running against a Donald Trump endorsed candidate. Running up against, you know, basically every power broker in Washington was backing this this other candidate, including the outgoing congressman. And so we had to sit down and and come up with an unorthodox way to be able to beat this traditional campaign we were running against. And so we played it. I don't know if you've ever seen Moneyball, but it's a significantly similar to how they uh, did that <laughs> how about program. That? Indeed. So we broke down what our number one vote goal was for the entire district. Then we broke that down to each county. Then we broke that all the way down to each precinct. So I, it was easy to gain volunteers because I said, hey, I need to get 16 votes out of your neighborhood. Can you do that? And almost everyone said, yeah, we can deliver 16 votes for you. And then that that ended us up having probably one of the most effective and robust ground games probably in the country throughout this election. Amazing. And because of that, we were able to come pull off a victory. So how does someone at the age of 25 with a campaign manager at the age of 22, if I add your two ages together, you're still not as old as I am. How did you how did you learn all of those uh, skills so quickly? Because uh, you're right. Everybody thinks politics about the ads and the message. The message is important. But ground game and precinct and head counts and vote counts are really what wins election. How did you get trained so quickly? What 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 got you so deeply ingrained in the ground game of politics? Uh, incredible mentorship. You know, we definitely uh, sought out a lot of wise counsel from people who ran campaigns before. Then we got that. And so we, we kind of had the background knowledge of that. But also due to, you know, being raised in Generation Z, uh, social media is really just second nature to me. Yeah. And so our, our entire campaign, you know, it was very integrated within our campaign to have a strong social media presence. Uh, we knew what, you know, if you could grab these big conservative ideas and put them into a small, well-wrapped package, it was easy to deliver to people. And people enjoy being able to be talked to in a way they can understand, not someone who's using Washington speak. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so, you know, we just came to people as real Americans. And I'll tell you, I just spent the last 10 days up in Washington, D.C., and I, it has become abundantly apparent to me that the people in Washington are not like normal Americans. They're <laughs> political animals who will do anything for the lust for power. Yeah, guilty. No doubt about it. I've experienced that in 30 years here, and you're absolutely right about it. So how was those 10 days? I mean, you go to orientation, you're, you're meeting with members of Congress, you're probably passing by AOC in the halls. What, what, what was that 10 days in, in Washington like? Uh, it was incredible. You know, I definitely thought that uh, it, it was it was amazing that there's really no playbook to how you can be a congressman. Now, if you want to just be, a, you know, just a, another rank and file member in the establishment, then there's definitely a playbook. You know, you just do what leadership says and right. everything will fall in the line. 
but if you're trying to really go out and branch out on your own, I, I kind of uh, liken it to, you know, almost, you know, you think of a Harry Potter or a, or, or a Gandalf in one of these great, great, uh, works of fiction you know they're handed a wand and you as the viewer you don't exactly know what they can do with that wand but you know it holds incredible power that's that's a lot what it's like coming into congress because there's really no limitations on to what you can and cannot do in congress aside from what the uh, supreme court will allow you to do and so aside from that if you want to shape a new path and chart a new path for your party before your country you're able to help really affect that change uh, and it was, it was striking to me that, you know, you're looking around, I'm seeing all these people, and, and it, the weight of responsibility really became very real to me when I realized, wow, I represent 700,000 people in Washington, D.C., and I'm their amazing, only voice. And, and so it means it's time to really step up and get to work. Yeah, no, it is. And you're going to be judged now, not on how you ran your campaign, but how you conducted yourself in, in getting policy done and getting the constituent services done. It's a big task. The... Um, you you tweeted something recently that has really captured my attention because I've been uh, preaching this for quite some time and in, in when I give speeches or talk to people. The the back end of the millennial generation and the Gen Z generation, uh, they get pasted as, you know, liberal socialists. But in fact, if you look at the younger side of the millennials and, and almost the entire Gen Z, it looks like they're really freedom lovers. They're more like the founding fathers than any generation in America in quite some time. Can, uh, do you think uh, we old folks here in Washington and in the political establishment, do we have that generation wrong? Are they really freedom lovers and about to, to become uh, libertarian conservatives? No, you actually have that pegged exactly right. Uh, it's definitely uh, – I would say a libertarian conservative is probably the best way to describe my generation because you know, we have very conservative politics. Uh, you know, a lot of people in my generation were alive to see what happened in 2008 when you know, we saw right. uh, what poor financial decisions can do to a household and can do to an entire country. And so we know that we want to have conservative politics to where we are wise and fiscally responsible. Uh, we also have seen, you know, I, I was alive to see our Twin Towers fall. I remember it vividly. And so I know that I want to have a very secure country. I want to know that I'm safe, I can, that there are brave men and women who will put on a uniform and go fight and die to keep us free and safe. Uh, and so because of that, you know, I think that, gives us that, that lends itself to leaning towards the conservative spectrum of politics. But also in the generation that we've been raised in, we, we also realize that you know Republicans choosing to die on a lot of social hills has made us less effective in the minds of most millennials, and I think that's what's really pushed them over to the far left. And so because of that, you know, I, I think we should push almost every social decision down back down to the states. states make it a states' and, rights issue, right? Exactly, and just as the founding fathers intended, and I think that's why you're probably making that comparison to where we are very similar to the founding fathers. You know, at the, at the end of the day, as long as it doesn't break, you know, your certain inalienable rights, and also doesn't break, you know, what your decisions don't harm another person, uh, then aside from that, it should go be pushed down to the states. And because of that, I think it appeals to a very wide range of people, and it become make, turns us into the big tent party. Now, uh, you being a very strong libertarian and having those freedom instincts, uh, what have you made of the last year with COVID-19 and the different ways that, you know, how a California versus a North Dakota versus a Virginia and a Florida have handled it? Uh, do you, what, what takeaways do you have in the way the local and the federal government have played the, the COVID-19 crisis? Because obviously it is a crisis, but um, are, you, are you satisfied we have the right remedies? 
Uh, no, I'm not. You know, it does not seem to me that lockdowns work. And now, in the very beginning, I completely understand having logistical issues. That's a very understandable problem that a, a hospital can have. You know, they're, they have a budget. They're trying to stick to that budget, and they don't want to buy more paper-cost goods than what they think they're going to need. Right. And so, you know, when they say that we need, you know, 14 days to, to flatten the curve or to, to help – to me, it wasn't necessarily about flattening the curve, but really it was about making sure that they had the, per, the, the appropriate amount of PPE uh, uh, equipment, that they had the right amount of ventilators, we had enough ICU beds. Uh, and I'm very happy to say that because we took really those 14 days and every, I think everyone in America took it seriously, right. uh, not a single person in our country that needed a ventilator went without a ventilator. And I think that's a testament to the current administration. It's a testament to, to really American ingenuity. You look at Elon Musk, who's able to provide so many. Uh, it's, it's really quite incredible. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, but post that, I, I do not believe that the lockdowns have been effective as a real means to keep people safe. Now, if you're afraid of COVID and you want to stay inside, that, that's completely understandable. Now, if you have pre-existing conditions, uh, you know, you have a heart condition, you have lung conditions, you have diabetes, you're over the age of 65, then, of course, take the appropriate precaution that you need to do. Uh, but if you are somebody who has, you know, a, a statistically a 99.9% survival rate with COVID-19, then I think you should be allowed to stay out inside of the workplace and stay out inside of the country uh, so we can keep our economy going, keep our society moving forward. And so I think that just trying to solve these problems with perpetual lockdowns, one, it will destroy our economy. And because of financial problems, that's going to lead to more single parent households uh, because, you know, we, we all know that financial issues are the number one cause of yeah, divorces of course, in yeah, the country. Uh, we also know that, you know, it, it, what is taught in AA, Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous, is that, you know, if you're having a really intense urge to have a drink, then go somewhere that's public and sociable that's not in a drinking setting, and so you can get away from that. So I think we've seen a significant increase in suicides due to alcoholism, and I think we've also seen a significant increase in the amount of uh, child abuse and uh, just abuse that happens, domestic abuse that happens in the homes. And so when they say that these lockdowns might help, sure, they might, they might help the number of COVID-19-related problems, but they create a whole litany of other problems, and I think it makes the cure worse than the actual disease. Yeah, so it's a point that uh, I think we're going to have a lot of takeaways when we go back and uh, armchair quarterback the last year. Um, moving on to another issue that I know is really important to you and I think could be a real opportunity in the next Congress. Obviously, you're going into a house where the speaker is going to be Nancy Pelosi, but um, you've talked a lot about the big tech companies and the need to rein them in and to end the sort of suppression of free speech that we've seen. And I know that's going to be a very important part of your agenda as you go in. What have you seen and learned? And do you think there's a bipartisan deal to be had to uh, to break up the big uh, tech uh, oligopies and, and other uh, or take other action that will uh, open up free speech in America again? Uh, yes, I do believe there's probably a way we can move forward. Um, but the it being bipartisan, it, it depends what part of the Democratic Party you're working with. Uh, you know, I do sincerely believe that the Democratic Party has been hijacked by the far left. And in my opinion, I don't think that their number one priority is, you know, climate change. I don't think their number one priority is health care. I believe that the, the number one policy priority of the far left radical Democrats is elections. They want to be able to control the what is said and what you can and cannot do and how you can vote so that they can gain power and keep it forever. And so I believe that it is incumbent upon us in America to fight back against that. And a way we can do that is by continuing to protect our rights to free speech. 
Um, so, you know, I, I have a, a video series where I normally post them on Facebook and Instagram right. that I call the Newtown Square. And the reason I'm doing that is because I want to really ingrain in people's minds that the, the, these Newtown Squares that we have, that although they are uh, private companies, these, these social media companies are acting as a platform. That means that it's within the town square. And if you can't go into the town square and freely and openly debate ideas that might hurt somebody's feelings, then that means that they we're going to be able to just go like sheep to the slaughter, and we won't be able to actually fight back against what's going to ha- come from the radical Democrats. Because in my mind, the, all they want is power, and I pray to God that they never get it. Uh, but I'll tell you, I do believe that there might be a way to get a bipartisanship inside of these uh, these big tech companies to where we can actually work forward with some of the Democrats to be able to try and pass you know sensible legislation that that treats these uh, these companies more like a utility rather than uh, a yeah. private company. The day that big government starts telling private companies what they can do, that, that's one major step back towards communism. And so we can't allow that to happen. But we do understand that because of basic necessities of life, you know, things like water and electricity, they have to be treated differently than, say, you know, a pizza company down the road. So and the so argument would be that because Facebook and, and Twitter thrive on, on Internet communication lines across state lines or across the public utility use right away is that there may be some um, exercise, exercise of government power to make sure that they uh, allow those to be used freely. Is that, is that sort of the thinking you have on, on big tech? You're exactly right, John. That's exactly where my mind's going. Wow. Interesting. That's going to be a fun argument to watch. And, you know, there's an interesting dynamic because Democrats just think they're too big and they want to be they want to break them up like they broke up Ma Bell and AT&T uh, 20, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So there's this interesting dynamic where the free speech interests of the libertarians and the conservatives could align with certain Democrats to, to get some um, some things going. When you look at the emerging platforms, the rumbles and the parlors of the world, the clout hubs, uh, are you feeling more confident that um uh, competition can also solve this problem. If we, if you get thrown off one platform, another one invites you on. The competition of ideas may may exist. Are you are you heartened to see new platforms coming up? I am heartened to see that. I really think uh, specifically, I believe Parler has been doing an incredible job of marketing himself as the free speech destination. Yeah. Uh, and so you know, I think that I, I I am confident. I believe that competition solves almost every single problem we face in America, including healthcare. Right. Uh, I believe that when you let the free market reign, it works very well. But you know, it's hard to have a free market system when you have these giant monopolies like we have with Facebook and Google. And so I, I'm looking forward to these, uh, the, specifically Parler and a lot of these other platforms that you mentioned coming up to create the competition we need. Yeah, that's, I think, going to be one of the really fun dynamics to watch in 2021 because these platforms are just getting to critical mass now where they're able to compete in, in that space. And I think that'll be one of the big, big things we'll be watching. As you look ahead to next year, what are some of your other policy priorities, other things you want to accomplish in your first year in Washington as a congressman? Well, no. Well, you know, I, I definitely wanted to assess the battlefield that I was going into, and so you know, a, a big thing that I want to do is really be the face of healthcare reform for the American people within the Republican Party. Uh, wow. Simply because I, I I represent the consumer end of a normal healthcare consumer, and I think I can bring a, a unique perspective because of that. 
Uh, and, but unfortunately, I don't believe that there's going to be any bipartisanship with the Democrats with my ideas because where they want socialized medicine, I, I just basically want to take us back to the Wild West. Let's have free market capitalism reign within uh, the healthcare systems because really we've never had the free market touch healthcare. Uh, so really, the laws were written in 1942. They're antiquated and they're outdated. Uh, but the Democrats and the Republicans and myself, we have vastly different ideas of how we can get that solved. So assessing my battlefield, knowing that's a, a battle we won't be able to win, uh, one that I do think we'll be able to get past is definitely something that's going to go along the lines of infrastructure reform. I'm sure it's no secret to you, John, but a lot of places in rural America, like it's some of the West, what's happening. Indeed, indeed, and so in some of the rural counties in America, you know, it's very difficult for them to get broadband connection. Yep. And when you have these areas that have a willing and able and ready workforce. Uh, but you don't have the actual infrastructure needed for manufacturing jobs or for textile mills. That's going to make it more difficult upon us to be able to get jobs back from China. And so I definitely want to fix those infrastructure problems so that we can have a stronger economy. Uh, but I just want to use this one point as a segue to my one of my most important things, and I think it will be the battle of my age against a foreign power. Uh, I, I really want to get upon the Foreign Affairs Committee so that we can really take on China head on. I think that the, the way that they're, you can tell they're playing a very long-term game. They are. Uh, as they are. Say, yeah, and so, but it's time for us to start fighting back boldly. I, I, Donald Trump is the first president I know of, you know, in the last 30 years who's really openly stood up to China. And I'm telling you, it's time to get tough on China. Yeah, and there's no doubt. And, and you can see the gains they're making, particularly not beyond the uh, Asia-Pacific Rim now, but uh, in the Asia-Pacific Rim, particularly what's happened in uh, Hong Kong, what they're threatening to do in, uh, with Taiwan. Uh, it is the number one foreign policy um, challenge of the future. And it's great to hear a young person like you, you know, really focused on that and zeroing in because it's going to be an important discussion. And many here in Washington are are uh, favorable to China because they have financial or other entanglements. And so uh, it'll be an interesting opportunity for you to, to sound the alarm. Uh, going back to healthcare, because I think it is one of those missed opportunities that Republicans have not been able to deliver an alternative that's resonated. Do you have a couple ideas that you could throw out there that would show a different approach to, to healthcare? Because I, I do think that that's an issue uh, when people are faced with socialized medicine or single payer medicine versus a market alternative. They always want the market alternative. What do you see as some good ideas that, that could resonate and gain traction across the country? I think simplifying the arguments, uh, you know, I, as we saw when we had the majority in 2016 to 18, uh, what we really saw happen was that, you know, all we said is we want to repeal and replace Obamacare. But, John, you're a very shrewd political commentator, so you might know this. Uh, but I, I don't think that the majority of Americans actually knew what Republicans wanted to replace it with. Right. And, and so because of that, it was hard to rally the people behind us. And because we live in a democratic republic, you have to have that public support. Uh, so I think that we need to simplify our message and make it very clear. And, you know, in my opinion, I think that we need to take this back to, you know, where I live right now, I'm in western North Carolina. And from where I'm sitting, uh, I can pick up a phone and there are four pizza companies that will deliver to my house right now. And so I think that it could be simplified to the fact that saying, hey, you know, those four companies, they are competing for my dollars and for my business. And so because of that, they are going to try and get me the best tasting pizza, meaning the highest quality, right. at the fastest possible, fastest possible way they can get it here for the least amount of money. 
And if they can, if they can all, if they can promise me those three things, then they're for sure going to get my money. But because of that, that's going to create a market-based system with amongst those four companies to where they are going to start really striving to give the best service they possibly can. And I think that if we implemented that into our healthcare systems, where we remove a lot of this regulation that exists around a lot of the insurance companies, you know, where you have to get a certificate of need to operate inside of a state, uh, I think that would increase the amount of competition and it would help hold these insurance companies and healthcare providers accountable. Uh, because right now in North Carolina where I live, Blue Cross Blue Shield ultimately has a, basically a virtual monopoly across this entire state. And so I think that we need to introduce some more legislation to reduce the regulations around healthcare. I think that would cheapen it and make it more affordable, more accessible for people. This telemedicine, which we kind of all converted to quickly with COVID-19, if you had a sore throat, you didn't go to the doctor's office, you called them on your phone and you did that. Does that give some unique opportunities, not only to create competition, but to extend access without the normal expense of a doctor's visit, a lab visit, all those things. As someone who has you know, strongly urged the use of technology to move this country forward, do you see that as one of the new emerging areas for cheap, effective health care for, for people who don't have it today? Absolutely. The example for that is I just want to say look at the market share that Amazon has right now. Yeah. When you move yeah. away from this brick-and-mortar mentality, it creates significantly less cost overhead, and you can service more customers because of that. And so I think that's a great avenue for us to choose. Uh, it's uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, time. So you'll get to Washington. You'll get sworn in on the 3rd. What does your first month look like? Do you have a 30-day agenda of what you want to try to accomplish in those uh, in that first month? Well, you know, I know a lot of people are trying to position for, for spots on leadership in the future or they're trying to get their footholds to go to the next rung of uh, political power. But I'll tell you, I think that that's the problem with Washington, D.C. We don't have enough representatives. And so my first 30 days are completely district focused. Uh, I want to have the most robust, most efficient and easiest and most accessible uh, constituent services that out of any congressman across this country. And so, you know, I'm really going to be focused here at home in the district. You know, I, I specifically want to make sure that my main place of residence where my family is, where I live, is still here in Western North Carolina so that I look these people in the eyes every single day and I know that I'm not going to betray them. I know what their needs are. I think we have too far too many people who live inside of a bubble of Washington, D.C. And so because of that, they're unable to really effectively know what the people in their constituency want. And so my first 30 days is going to be all about the district. Wow, that's an important message to send. How about that? One last question, because it's one that I know when I talk to the young people here in the office and around the country, uh, the crushing deficit, the debt, uh, the excessive spending, the explosion of the size of government. We have government agencies upon government agencies that supervise government agencies. It just it's crazy. Do you have any ambitions to start efforts to shrink the size of bureaucracy and government, try to get it back down to a manageable cost and also a manageable uh, uh, bureaucracy that actually is responsive to the American people? I absolutely do. You know, this is something I campaign pretty heavily on. Yeah. And John, I'll tell you, if you ever have to prove this to somebody, uh, just tell them that when, to say that our government has grown too large. Just say, hey, pick any three letters within our alphabet, put them together. And on the odds are, the odds really are in your favor that you will have got that you'll have the acronym for some major government <laughs> agency or yeah. division that is designed to tell us what we can and cannot do. I really think these three-letter agencies, as I like to call them, have become the fourth branch of government. 
Uh, but unfortunately, we don't have a great – there's no real checks and balances like there are on the other three branches of the government. And so I want to introduce some legislation where we can have direct oversight of these particular uh, particular agencies inside of our country and to give us a line item veto of budget so we can go through and say, you know, why are we giving the ATF, you know, however many billions of dollars we give them every single year? Let's limit that so that we can rein them in and protect and protect the American people. I think that's one of the number one uh, policy positions the Republicans should have because, again, if you want to win my generation, just promise us more freedom and we'll, 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 come, we'll, come, we'll come along. Such an important point. Well, uh, Congressman-elect, we're excited for, uh, for your adventure that about, is about to start on January 3rd. We're going to be following you here closely at justthenews.com. Our congressional correspondent, uh, Nick Ballacy, I'm sure will be in touch. But uh, we wish you luck and we look forward to having you back on the show uh, after, uh, after the new year. Great job. Well, I looked, uh, looked forward to uh, shaking up our country, so hopefully it'll be pretty newsworthy. I can't wait to come back on. Sounds like a good plan. All right, folks, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll wrap things up for the day. All right, folks, as we draw near to another critical election, it's not only about casting your vote. It's about elevating your voice, making your voice be heard. AMAC is more than just a senior discount organization. They unite like-minded patriots like you and I, committed to preserving our cherished values and actively opposing the leftist agenda that's sweeping across America. Just look at their recent victories. AMAC members helped to push forward an investigation into practices that inflate drug prices. They successfully defeated ranked choice voting in order to protect traditional voting methods, and they also helped block a federal takeover of elections. As AMAC's membership grows, Washington is listening. Every new member strengthens this movement. If you love America, visit AMAC, A-M-A-C slash Just News to become a four-year member for just $30. That's a great discount. AMAC is not only better for America, it's better for you. Membership gives you access to the AMAC magazine, free Social Security and Medicare guidance, money-saving discounts, trusted news, sweepstakes, and so much more. It's a community, not a service. Take advantage of our election year sale. Four years for just $30 at AMAC. By joining over 2 million Americans, they can't ignore your voice in Washington anymore. Join now at AMAC, AMAC.us slash Just News. That's AMAC.us forward slash Just News. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. We hope you like the podcast and all we did with it today. It was a good interview with Madison Cawthorn. I learned a lot. You can see a young congressman already starting to burble ideas and come up with a policy agenda that appeals to young people, to centrists, to libertarians, expanding the Republican tent that uh, Donald Trump has massively expanded already. Very interesting conversation. Somebody to keep an eye on. I hope you also enjoyed the analysis of the 12 most important um, pieces of evidence that are concrete or you know solid uh, that have emerged in the election integrity investigation we think those are worth looking at and diving in we will be back tomorrow with another great show until then have a great night be, be safe and may the lord bless you and this great country Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner. Whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bite, 
you and your family need to be prepared. That's what we learned from this last pandemic, right? That's where the wellness company comes in. You know the wellness company. We have their great doctors like Dr. Peter McCullough on all the time on our shows. The wellness company and their doctors are medical professionals that you can trust. And the new medical emergency kits are the gold standard when it comes to keeping you safe and healthy, and most importantly, prepared. Be ready for anything. This medical emergency kit contains an assortment of life-saving medications, including ivermectin and z The medical emergency kit provides a guidebook to aid in the safe use of all of these life-saving medications. So you know what you're doing. From anthrax to tick bites to COVID and even the bioweapon like the plague, the wellness company's medical emergency kit is exactly what you need to have on hand to be prepared. Rest assured knowing that you have emergency antibiotics, antivirals, and antiparasitics on hand to keep you and your family safe from whatever the globalists throw your way. Go to www.twchealth/justnews today in order. That's twc.health/justnews and use the promo code justnews to save 10%. Hey there, it's Amanda Head, and I am thrilled to introduce to you my new exciting podcast, Furthermore, with Amanda Head, broadcasting weekly from sunny Los Angeles, California, and brought to you by the dynamic Just the News Podcast Network. On this fresh and engaging podcast, I delve into the latest news with a little bit of a twist, exploring the furthermore of every story. But this isn't your typical run-of-the-mill news commentary or politically charged program. I interview a diverse range of guests, including business leaders, entertainers, musicians, educators, experts, politicians, and many influential figures from both the United States and around the world. So why not make your Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays a little more interesting? Tune in on your preferred podcast platform and discover furthermore with Amanda Head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button and be sure to download the latest episodes. I can't wait to have you join me on this exciting journey. 